Isaiah chapter 41, I'm going to read through verse 20, uh, and then we'll see how far, um, how far we go in the comments. Um, I, I, this is some beautiful stuff, but I want to look at the whole picture as well as the individual things. So we'll just see how far we get. So Isaiah 41, uh, beginning at verse number one, keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave him the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had uh, not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The coastland sought and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with a hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced, and they shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and the glory, and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the olive oil tree, and I will set it in the desert. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. In this uh, section here, we have uh, four different sections I'd like to look at. The first one, um, in verses 1 through 7, uh, we see uh, God's call to all the coastlands. The word coastlands there is the same word that's translated isles in the previous chapter when God said he holds the isles in his hands and they're considered as nothing. It basically in the Hebrew means any land that's accessible by boat, um, as, as roughly as that can be. In the Hebrew mind, this would be all the Gentile kingdoms. 
the Hebrews were not, the, Israel was not a seafaring people. Um, and so they thought of the sea as being wild and where all the bad things happened. And so this is the Gentile world. And here it's shocking that God is calling to the coastlands and calling them to keep silence before him. Uh, in that first verse, uh, in that very first verse, there's a difference of interpretation. The Hebrew can go either way. If you have several different translations, they'll translate it based on what their view of this text is. It can either mean, all of you Gentiles, bring your greatest strength against me and we shall see who prevails. Um, and so uh, let the people renew their strength. They would translate that, uh, give it your worst, show you how strong you are, that sort of thing. I lean the other way with our translation. Uh, it's the idea of God reaching out in mercy. It's similar to the language that he's using in chapter one with Israel when he says, come, let's reason together. Let's discuss this together. Be silent and come to me and renew your strength. There's going to be disaster coming. There's going to be some horrible disaster, and now would be the time to seek the Lord. And Isaiah here is anticipating what he's going to see when we get to chapter 65 and 66 with all of the people of the world gathered together into the kingdom of God. But in the meantime, here's this picture in verses 1 through 7. We have the overview of all of this is God calling to the Gentiles to put their trust in the God of Israel. Their idols are nothing. Uh, it's not the idols of Persia that's going to raise up Cyrus. It's the Holy One of Israel that raises up Cyrus. Uh, verse number two, who raised up one from the east. Uh, and several different interpretations of this. Uh, it could be some people say it's Christ. Some people say it's Abraham. Uh, some people say others. I think in the context of all of these chapters, it can only be Cyrus who will be named a few chapters later. Cyrus is the king of Persia who will be used by God to bring punishment to the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, for their cruelty towards Israel. God will judge this great empire and use Cyrus to do it. And Cyrus will be terrifying. I don't think the description of the rest of this, that the nations are as dust under the sword, that he's going to trample the nations, I don't think that fits uh, the prophecies concerning Christ in this section or Abraham at all, but it does fit Cyrus perfectly and it fits the context. Here, Isaiah is looking into the future. He's seeing a hundred years away the Babylonian captivity and the cruelness of that, the cruelty and the viciousness of that exile. And now he's seeing redemption. He's seeing God calling one from the east. Uh, it says even in righteousness, he called him to his feet. God's righteousness, his righteous judgment is going to be wielded by the sword of Cyrus. And of course, Cyrus is a wicked man, and yet he will do all of God's purposes. It's a righteous thing for God to bring judgment to the Babylonians. And that's what's being referred to here. In this context, Isaiah is going to spell it out more as we get farther along uh, exactly Persia's role in all of this. But the context of this is who God is. This is why the mention of this person called from the east isn't the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is God. 
Who is the one doing this? Who is the one stirring up the armies that come from the east? Whatever they are, whether they're the Babylonians or whether they're the Persians or whether the Assyrians, who's doing it? And of course it's God, our creator, our maker, our redeemer. He's working out his righteousness. He's exercising his righteousness on this earth. There is nothing outside of his decree and nothing outside of his power. We looked at his power and his providence in the previous chapter, and here he's mentioning it again in verse number four. Who has performed and done it? Who is the one that has done all of this? Calling the generations from the beginning. The word generations in the Hebrew means that which is brought forth. Um, in uh, the book of Genesis, for example, is divided into 10 sections, each of them beginning with these are the generations of. It starts with the generations of the earth and then the generations of Adam and the generations of Noah. And each section is what did the earth bring forth? It brought forth the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then sin entered into the world. What did Adam bring forth? What did, Seth, what did uh, 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 Noah bring forth? And so forth. Hear all of this. It's so easy to look at this world and to think that everything operates like a mechanism, uh, a cause and effect. We see the cause and effect everywhere. We, you know, drop a, a bottle on the floor and it falls down and it breaks and it shatters everywhere. We see the cause and effect. Uh, this last weekend, the storm was so bad, it blew one of our windows out. Uh, this was simply the cause of a very, very brutal storm and weakened old windows. That's cause and effect. What did the wind bring forth? It brought forth a broken window. Uh, what did the rain bring forth? It brought forth a leaky roof. All of these things that happened. And here God is saying all the generations. What people have brought forth, what the wind brings forth, what the sea brings forth, what the nations bring forth, what politics brings forth, all of that. Who has called it from the beginning? It's God that's done it all from the beginning. That is, before anything was brought forth, there was God. And then he goes on to say that he's the first and the last. Not only did he do this from the beginning, he will do it until the very end. He's the first and the last. Did you catch that? And then with this past and with the future, the first and the last, he sums it all up with an eternal present. I am he. This is God revealing himself to be not someone that ages and moves through the moments of history and that goes from section to section of time and reacting to things that are happening as if he doesn't expect them and he doesn't know what's going on, but as the eternal God. To use classical theology and those terms, when we talk about the eternity of God, we mean that he has no beginning, he has no end, and he has no succession of moments. When we think of infinity like a sequence of math, uh, we have numbers that go negative for eternity in theory and positive for eternity in theory, an, in, an infinite list of numbers. But each number is finite. One is not two and it's not zero. It's one. Uh, 
God does not have that section of that session session of moments. There isn't a before and an after with God. God declares the end from the beginning because he's at the end as he is at the beginning in an eternal present I am he. And the practical outbringing of all of this is how is Cyrus going to defeat the purposes of God? How are the Babylonians going to defeat the purposes of God? When God purposes that Cyrus is going to crush all the nations and yet deliver Israel, what are the idols of the heathen going to do? Because the idols of the heathen, he describes them in his next section. They see all of this outworking. The the nations know there is a God and they're terrified of the movements of the gods. The movements of the spiritual realm. They didn't serve the Baals because they were loving the Baals. They served the Baals because they were terrified of them. And so what did they do? They built bigger gods. They, they, they called their craftsmen together, verse number 7. And the goldsmith gets together with the craftsmen and they build these things and they rivet it all and they nail it all together and they put it down so that it doesn't fall over. And they say, now save us. Now, we're going to talk more about this when we get to the other chapters, because Isaiah is comparing this back and forth, uh, the gods of the heathen, to the very next phrase is what I want to focus on. But you, Israel, are my servant. So this brings us to the second section, which is verses um, 8 through 13, where the servant of God is described. Israel is called my servant. Um... This is not a degrading term. The, the point of all of this is not that we're cowering slaves. The church is not a cowering slave under the feet of God. The servant is a highly trusted and honored position. And yet the servant exists to do the will of the master. So give me just a second here. The foolishness of the nations in building their idols, hoping to get the gods' attention to defeat Cyrus or whatever the invader happens to be, to keep the wind from breaking out the windows, to get the crops to grow, and all of those things, it's compared to the loving kindness of God. See, Israel, Jacob, doesn't have to build an idol to capture the power of God because they are already in a special, loving, covenantal relationship that's established by the Father himself. You, my servant Jacob. The key in this phrase, who is Israel? He says in verse, in the third phrase, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. And this is the key phrase. The nation of Israel, the physical descendants of Israel, eventually took this to mean that physical descent from Abraham is all, it's everything. God loves you and it doesn't matter what you do. When Christ came into the world, John the Baptist, remember what he said? He said, don't say to yourself, we're descendants of Abraham. God is able of stones to raise up children of Abraham. And then Paul clarified that when he said, it's not those who are have the DNA of Abraham. It's those who have the faith of Abraham. 
And the proof text of that was Ishmael was rejected, even though he was Abraham's physical descendant, and Isaac was the child of the promise. This brings us to what the New Testament... I want to point this out because these aren't promises given to some ancient people that have no relevance for us today. The genealogies go until they end in Christ. And the scripture teaches us that by faith, the faith of Abraham, who looked forward and saw Jesus' day and rejoiced by faith, when we have that faith of Abraham, we are flesh of Jesus' flesh and bone of his bone, and therefore we are the descendants of Abraham, and therefore we are Israel, my servant, Jacob, my chosen one. We're the Gentiles that were promised in the rest of this book, grafted into the same vine as the believing Israel, the remnant that's described here. And look at the language that's used to describe us. Chosen, servant, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. The Hebrew there is literally my lover. It's the word for love. Abraham is in a love relationship with the father. And therefore it follows because of Christ, we are in that same relationship. That's what the scripture teaches. We're heirs to the same promise of Abraham. We've been, verse 9, taken from the ends of the earth, called from its farthest regions. God said to us, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you by my righteous hand. Now, here's an interesting thing. Throughout this passage, the word you is not plural. It's singular. It's not the whole church pitted against each other. It's the body of Christ collectively. Which is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he describes so many different body parts all joined together with one body, each one of us have our gifts and our abilities and are all united together in one you. So all of us are individuals, and yet there's one body. And this you, this body, all engrafted to Christ, where Christ is the head and we are the members, exist for one purpose. We're the servant of God in the same love relationship as God, and yet we're given the commission to do God's will on this earth. That's the commission of the church. We don't protect ourselves. We don't uphold our own right hand. We don't have to plow our way through this and try and figure out that's the way the pagans do it. We're not building our own gods. We're simply the servants of God and the recipients of his promise. Think about the relationship in this text between verse 7 and then verses 8 through 10. So often, the church today throughout the world is acting like verse 7. We make the image. We make God. We uphold him. We hold him up so he doesn't totter. We've got to protect our ministry. We've got to protect our system. We've got to circle the wagons. We've got to protect God's honor. We're thinking like verse 7 instead of thinking like verses 8 through 10. God is upholding us. We have one task. Rest in the fact that we're God's lovers. 
and do his will on this earth. And what's his will according to the book of Isaiah? Be a voice for the oppressed. Justice for the widow. The proclamation of the gospel, bringing hope and life and peace to the world. Look at how Israel responded to the poor and the needy just in chapter 1. They were not doing God's will because they were trying to uphold their idols. Instead, now, as Isaiah is looking forward to this exile, he's seeing a crushed and miserable people. And he's encouraging them and strengthening and building them up. He says, don't, God is going to build you up. God is, you are his people, his dearly loved people. There's a beautiful thing that we miss unless we're reminded of it continuously. Because we're so consumed with our own works and our own morality that we've got to make sure we toe the line and if we step out of line, God's going to get us. So we've got to make sure we do everything right or God's about to punish us. You know how many times I have this conversation with people because this is who they believe God is. And yet, how does God speak of his people? You are my special treasure. You are my people. You are my loved ones. You are my children. I have called you. I have gathered you. I have sought you. What does that hymn say? From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. I saw something this past week that I've never seen before. There's a hymn, I don't know if you've heard it, it's a really old hymn. Uh, it's called, I Found the Pearl of Greatest Price. I found a pearl of greatest price, my heart doth sing for joy. That's the standard interpretation of that parable that was told by Christ. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who discovers a pearl of great price, and he sells everything he has that he might obtain it. That's all he says. We have always interpreted that as if we are the ones that seek Christ, who's the pearl of great price. But I think it's the other way around. I think Jesus is talking about himself. He's the one that gave up his glory, became a baby in the manger, and was obedient unto death. For what purpose? To find his bride, to find his lost sheep, to find his pearl of great price, his servant Jacob. Doesn't that change everything about how we live our life? Wow, that really just, it's so encouraging. And now it's like we can get up and, and love our neighbor with joy and do the work that God has called us to do with joy and with peace. Because he says, be not dismayed, I am your God. And then verse 11, 12, and 13, he's talking about the church being victorious. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If we start to act like verse 7, which we do, then the church is chastened. And sometimes the remnant is left, just like it was in the days of Israel, which happens frequently. But if we rest in God's work and understand that we are the servant, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced, they shall be as nothing. Those that strive against you shall perish. When we are at our weakest, 
Our enemies seem so strong, but they're not strong to God. The first and the last. Verse 13, I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. We actually see this played out. Well, first of all, obviously in Christ, who is the servant. This concept of servant is going to be gradually, in Isaiah, narrowed to one, the righteous suffering servant, who is Christ himself of the seed of Abraham, which is why Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, starts with a genealogy from Abraham. But because he was in Christ, this also applied to Paul. What was his favorite designation? Paul, an apostle, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything he did, he did as a servant. And he said, it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's foolishness to the Jews. He goes preaching the gospel of Christ. And the whole world was changed. His enemies couldn't stand before him. And yeah, he trembled. He was in weakness. He was in fear. But victory was his. But victory wasn't defined by the world. It was defined by God. Which brings us to the next section. This is verse 14 through 16. The third section of this of the text we're looking at this morning. Now he's talking about giving power to the worm. Isaac Watts popularized in his hymn, which is a great hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head to such a worm as I? Um, what we now call worm theology. It seems very popular among a certain kind of person um, where you, you preach uh, how horrible and loathsome and creepy and disgusting and foul we all are and and yet God came for us. It kind of contradicts how God describes his people. It is true, apart from Christ, our sins have made us loathsome. The scripture is very clear about that. And and yet, as God's people, we are not loathsome, disgusting vermin. We're the loved ones of God. He's not just waiting for us to mess up so he can squash us. So worm here, this the Hebrew word is simply, it's actually the same word for scarlet, believe it or not. And I'm not sure what the connection is for that. It could be a glowworm, it could be a a red-colored type of worm. It's any kind of a worm-like creature. It could be anything. The idea is not that it's a loathsome creature because that contradicts what he's just said about Jacob. It's his weakness that here's a little earthworm. If you can imagine a little earthworm facing a huge mountain range and he's got to take down that mountain range. How many times does our life feel like that? That we're like earthworms facing a giant mountain. If you go on Facebook, you can find my magnificent drawing that I've made of it. Um, the little earthworm facing the huge mountain range. You're like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? But look what he says. God is going to transform this worm. God is our creator and redeemer. And so he says in verse 15, Behold, I make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. When God says you're going to take this mountain down, then you're going to take that mountain down. And once again, all the yous are singular. It's not the application of the prosperity preacher 
where if you have your own particular obstacle to overcome, if you just have enough faith, you can overcome your cancer, you can overcome your whatever that is. It's not, that's not the case. The case is this. The church is going to prevail. God will redeem all of us. Every individual, not one will be lost. And everything that he uses to do that, whether it's your cancer or whether it's your exile or whether it's your pain or whether it's your joy or whether it's your whatever that is, it will gather all of his people together and he will call you together into his presence, which is the last section. The obstacle, the immediate obstacle that Isaiah sees And as I said last week, it's like looking at a mountain range where you see from a distance mountains that all look the same distance away. At first, Isaiah is talking about just being released from exile and gathering back into the land and building the temple. Talk about a tremendous obstacle taking place where you are, you imagine being in exile. You live in a house, you're with your family, you work every day. You're enslaved. How are you going to pack up and head back to Israel? You can't even get your papers straight. What are you going to do? It's impossible. You're enslaved by the Babylonian armies, just like you were enslaved by Egypt. God says, don't worry about those mountains. My promise is going to come true, period. God's promises to you, even though they appear to be huge mountains, you will take them down because his promises can't fail. That's the point. You will be sanctified. You will be made beautiful. Your head will be lifted up. You will be victorious. You will stand before Christ in clean garments, accepted and wholly loved in the beloved. You will walk with your feet on the new heavens and the new earth and see the Lord with your eyes and hear the angel's song with your ears. Even though that sounds impossible. One of the reasons they started burning the martyrs and scattering their ashes everywhere is to make it impossible for God to raise them from the dead. But we know better. What's that going to do to God who created everything? I will make you a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. God is going to fulfill his promises. So that's the first fulfillment. God's going to bring his people back to Babylon or to to Israel, out of Babylon. But then the next section that we read, it talks about the poor and needy being thirsty, but God's going to make rivers and bring trees up through the wilderness. Now God is looking forward. Isaiah is looking forward and he's seeing something far more glorious than simply the return to Israel. Because as we know, there's still thirst, there's still hunger. And God does care for his people. But this is a glorious promise that's going to be fulfilled fully in the last day. And I would like to, if I can get this to work. There we go. Revelation chapter 22. Because of the work of Christ... Let's back up a little. You can turn to Revelation 22, and I want to read a few verses there. The, what, what Isaiah is describing here is a new exodus. He's using the picture of Israel coming through the wilderness. As they're coming through the wilderness, they're thirsty. 
They're crying out for water. They're murmuring against God because they don't believe in God's goodness. And God brings water out of the rock. That rock, Paul tells us, was Christ. The water was Christ. The Holy Spirit that was poured out when the water was struck. We've talked about this before. When Christ comes into the world, he's the one that brings the water. He's the suffering servant. He's the one that provides redemption. He is Moses leading the new exodus. He's the one who's fulfilling all the shadows and all the types of the old covenant until finally we see even more glorious than what Isaiah saw, the fulfillment at the end of all things described in Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now think about the beauty of this imagery and what Isaiah is seeing. The partial fulfillment was indeed when under Cyrus, and Cyrus declared the decree for Zerubbabel and Joshua to enter back into the land and rebuild the temple. And yet, read Ezra and Nehemiah, the enemies were still fighting, there was still a curse, there was still sin, there was still corruption, there was still uh, uh, all the troubles and all the, the danger and all the death and the curse that was still in the world. The world was hungry and waiting for something else. And even now, even though Christ has come and he's conquered sin and death and misery, yet oftentimes we feel like we are still in exile. We're still longing for that day because it's all pointing to the consummation when Christ comes again, when the nations are gathered together and the desert blossoms like a rose and the tree of life grows everywhere. What he's describing in our text in Isaiah is the renewing of Eden. But Eden now is being renewed not out of nothing, but out of the desert. It's been wasted. It's been torn apart with a curse. There's been death and sorrow and suffering and thorns and thistles. But God is going to transform all of it. And the whole reason is so that the whole universe will know that the hand of Jehovah has done it. And the Holy One of Israel, the one who is our God and we are his people, we will be glorified with him when the whole world, the whole universe declares his praises. This is the beauty of all of this. And of course, when you looked at that phrase where God is describing himself as the first and the last, those are the words used for Jesus Christ on this last day. When he says right after that description in Revelation 22, down in verse 12, he says, And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In Isaiah, it's Jehovah that is speaking these words, the Holy One of Israel. There's only one. And in the New Covenant, it's Christ himself, the true and eternal God who was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
so that we might walk in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a beautiful promise. Even though on this earth and in this life we so often feel like we're the worm facing a mountain, and yet there's God's promise that he is with us, he will never fail us, he will give us strength. There's not one thing that's happening here that is going to take the church out of his hand, that's outside of his decree. He doesn't look at your life and say, oh, I didn't think you were going to do that. That's it, you're out. He already knows all of that. He already knows who you are because he made you that way. He knows what you have done because he's all-knowing. He sees everything. And he still calls you my chosen one, my lover, my friend of the faith of Abraham, my special treasure, my pearl of great price. And we respond and say, my beloved is mine and I am his. With that, I'll stop. I did get all the way through it, so wahoo, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for such tremendous, glorious promises. And yet, as the worms on this earth were very often surrounded by the mountains and the terrors of the sea, we pray, Father, that you would lift our eyes up by your Spirit to where you are, uh, to uh, where all the sea is as glass before you and the mountains are as valleys before you, so that we can trust in you and rest in your promises And with uplifted head, walk with joy every day of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.